From Kickstarter, this is just the beginning. In this episode, unnatural resources. We go out for a tea and a cup of coffee, we come back, we see that the prototype is on fire right now. I found out about the water crisis and I realized this is where I'm supposed to be. If I can travel around the world, why not help out in my own backyard? If you don't tell people that you failed, more often than not, they don't know. Don't look back if you trip. I'm Nick Gilman. I'm Zakia Gibbons. And on this podcast, we talk a lot about creative process. You know, how things are made. But in this episode, we're going to focus on what they're made from. We'll hear stories about designers making products out of pollution, carbon emissions from factories in India, and the mountains of plastic water bottles that accumulated during Flint, Michigan's water crisis. And when we think about a global problem like pollution, it's easy to feel helpless. Many of us have no idea where to begin. But you're about to meet two people who did find somewhere to begin. They saw how pollution was affecting the places where they grew up. And instead of feeling helpless, they realized that the skills they developed designing things and experimenting with technology meant that they could transform pollution into something useful, beautiful even. First, we'll hear from Anrud Sharma, the co-founder of Graviki Labs. They capture carbon air pollution and turn it into ink that can be used for drawing, writing, or printing. And they call it air ink. Anrud grew up in Mumbai, India, knowing he wanted to invent things. And as you'll hear, he's created some pretty wild stuff. But when he went to school to study engineering, it didn't go so well. I joined engineering with the whole idea that this is going to be about building stuff and found myself hanging around more more in the labs than in the classrooms. And the grades showed up and uh, there were too many Fs on my transcript, which I can brag about now, but back then it was painful. So I loved engineering so much that I could not finish my engineering degree. Anrud started working on various open source projects and eventually started his own company that made shoes to help people with visual impairments navigate cities, using vibrations to provide turn-by-turn instructions. It was the first time he'd applied his engineering skills to solving a social problem, and it helped him get into the MIT Media Lab. That place wasn't about instructions and courses, it was more about collaborating across disciplines. I was like a kid in the candy store. On top of his own research, Anrud led a group from MIT that ran design workshops in India, sharing the hands-on approach to engineering that he loved. It was a way to help other students who were struggling to find inspiration in the same rigid education system he'd been through. And on one of those trips home, he noticed something. I would see pollution everywhere. It would make your clothes dirty or faster. You would look at patches on walls where the walls would turn black. And seeing how air pollution was marking all these things gave him an idea. Could he turn air pollution into ink for writing, drawing, and printing? He set out to answer that question when he returned to MIT. I couldn't find much pollution in Boston, so I had to resort to using a candle and made a small printer that would suck in that candle soot. Only worked once, but I was lucky enough to get it on my smartphone camera. And uh, when I showed that video to people around me, they said, hmm, this can be interesting. You can actually apply it to solving part of the pollution problem. It was this sense of experimentation where you don't think too much. You just do. Whenever you have a crazy idea, just start it. Nobody would have told me to do this because my thesis and my entire life's training was in a complete different area. And so, Anrud was faced with a choice about what he wanted to do after graduating from MIT. One side was this flashy world of new technology where 
I could have worked in a top research lab building these futuristic interfaces or making the TV just a little bit thinner would be my entire life's work. And on the other side was this problem that we all are dealing with, which we had an idea for. So I chose impact over flashiness. I didn't think twice and I packed my bags and moved back to India. I went to Bangalore and took up a big house over there and just called all the people whom I knew like, hey, I'm back in India, let's do something interesting. So literally started with like a lot of hackers staying in one house. We were dealing with fire, we were dealing with pollution, chemicals. We had to explain it to our landlord that, hey, we are trying to solve the pollution problem. We're not trying to burn your house. But the lab would at times set on fire. We used to work on really high voltages to capture pollution. And a wrong connection would lead to a lot of sparking. If we go out for a tea and a cup of coffee, we come back, we see that the prototype is on fire right now. And people walking by our lab, they would see fire, wires, and they would think like, what are these guys doing? Are they making bombs in there? I mean, imagine with that prototype going to an investor and trying to raise money. But things kept growing organically. We had that sense of community in problem solving. I don't have money to buy an electron microscope for myself, but people would come and, and volunteer their equipment for us. From that lab idea, it became something that people could write from, people could paint from. We call it the air ink, inks made from air pollution. That was the point that we started looking at ourselves as a product company that is making new products out of air pollution. They still encountered a lot of skepticism. To many, it seemed like a fun, whimsical idea, but maybe not a real business. Luckily for Anrud and the Air Inc. team, the people they needed to reach were not only inclined to embrace out their ideas, they knew how to share them. Artists were the people who adopted us for the first time. They would tell stories with their art to a wider sense of people. We heard from artists that it's not just a good ink because it's made by recycling, but that it's also a very sharp black color. We call it the new black because this black always changes. So every batch of black we make is never going to be the same because you're recycling pollution that comes from undefined sources. So what are the sources of pollution that Air Inc. is using? Initially, they created a little device that fit onto the tailpipes of cars to collect carbon from the exhaust, but it wound up being hard to scale. We stopped working with cars because they were moving targets. It's very difficult to collect that pollution. If you put it on 10,000 cars, those 10,000 cars are going to go into 10,000 different directions. So what we started to work on was collecting pollution from static sources, diesel generators, small and medium chimney stacks. Why make inks by burning fossil fuels in factories when fossil fuels are being burned by millions of polluting sources out there? When Anrud said that last bit, why make inks by burning fossil fuels in factories? I realized I had no idea how black ink is made. Like I probably would have said it's harvested from squids or something. And at first I thought he meant that factories producing ink burn fuel to operate machinery. But no, he literally means that fuel, natural gas, or various kinds of oil, is burned to create a pigment called carbon black. Basically producing carbon emissions just to get that carbon. Carbon black is the pigment that is used in production of our inks, our tires, in prints, in fashion, in fabric, and so on. And there's some factory somewhere in the world that is conventionally burning fossil fuel to produce that black color. And what we are saying is, you don't need to burn fossil fuel to make inks. 
fossil fuels are already being burned and the pollution is being caused. So there's double the impact when you make these inks. You make carbon negative inks and you also confine the pollution that would have been in lungs. While Enrude and his team were focused on finding factories to install their own pollution capture technology, they started hearing from companies that were already capturing pollution and didn't know what to do with it. A lot of polluters also got in touch with us. We started getting spammed with these bags of pollution from polluters around the world saying that, can you recycle our pollution? Enrude pulled out his phone and showed me a photo. It's a huge pile of sacks, like the industrial-sized packages of flour or rice that a restaurant might buy. But you wouldn't want to eat what's inside these. A few days ago, this polluter sent us an image of 20 bags full of pollution. I asked him, what are you going to do with this? Uh, he said, I'm going to dump it into a nearby river because we don't know what to do with it. So he said, why don't you send it to us? Had we not bought that material from him, that air pollution would have been transformed into water pollution and somehow ended up in our fish, in our food, and so on. If you don't mind saying, where is that company based? I can say that. I cannot give you the name of, of course, it. Of course, of yeah. course, So this is a polluting factory in northern India, above Delhi, towards Punjab, uh, which is known to be an industrial uh, state in India. So not only him, several other polluters in his uh, vicinity told the same thing, that we all find the cheapest means of waste disposal is, is river. And it's bad, I know, but it's the economics in the end that if we, they give this stuff to a waste management company, they'll have to pay the waste management company. And if we could pay them for this waste, they would happily keep it for us to recycle. I cannot just say that this polluter is bad because he's creating pollution. No, he's creating products for you that you use. So when you start understanding people, I think the ideas that you come up with are more realistic and deployable. Buckminster Fuller did a lot of work on carbon himself. And Fuller said pollution is nothing but the resources we are not harvesting yet. And we do that because we have been ignorant of its value. In nature, there's nothing called waste, right? Like a tree falls, the leaves fall on the ground, and they would decompose and become the tree again. There is nothing called waste if you know how to use it. Anrud is also quite philosophical when I ask him about the future of his company. So the ultimate thing for us is to not exist, because hoping the pollution is not there to capture. Really though, their goal is to exist everywhere. Any place that traditional carbon black is used now could be air ink someday. After our interview, Anrud had to catch a train from New York to Boston, and he asked if I could print out his ticket for him. As we stood by the printer, he talked about how this was the future of air ink. We're trying to build prototypes of printers that can actually print with this ink. And now if that is standardized, imagine the amount of carbon that would be recycled. We still read our newspapers, we still buy our books, we still take our printouts of our tickets. If you replace that, if you can print with this material using conventional printers, the sustainable uh, cycle that you can make is huge. Air ink is not just an ink, it's a messaging tool. There are these newspaper companies who want to print that city's newspaper with that city's pollution itself. Every day, the headlines are the pollution levels are five times higher. One day, that newspaper wants to be like, we print our newspapers with the same carbon that we were talking about only till yesterday. Imagine like, a million people waking up to that newspaper. The amount of awareness it raises, they probably wouldn't drive their car to work, they would probably take a public transport. So all that is a bigger building of a movement around this problem right now that's really powerful for us. To learn more and see art created using Air Inc., head to Gravity Lab's website. 
We heard music in this story by Jake Armerding and Frank Locrasto. Our next story about finding the hidden value in pollution takes us to Flint, Michigan. We'll meet Allie Rose Van Overbeck, the founder of Genesee, a company that's turning plastic water bottles from the city's water crisis into eyeglasses. Allie grew up near Detroit, went to design school in New York, and wound up working in the corporate fashion world, designing clothes for mass market brands, and it just wasn't for her. I get bored really easily and wanted to use design and fashion in a different way as a community builder and as a unifier. So she quit her job and went to India for a month, where she volunteered with an organization that supports women who have survived domestic abuse. It felt good to be working on a cause that she cared about. When I left, I thought I was going to be moving back there to work with this NGO. I flew back to Detroit from India on Christmas Day of 2015 and found out about the water crisis. And I realized this is where I'm supposed to be. Like, if I can travel around the world to do something, why not help out in my own backyard? I was working with the Red Cross and an organization called Islamic Relief, knocking on people's doors, asking them if they needed water and filters and making sure people didn't feel alone in what they were going through. Here's a quick reminder of what people were going through in Flint, a city about an hour north of Detroit. In an effort to save money, the city switched from Detroit's water supply to the nearby Flint River in 2014. Immediately, residents started complaining about the smell and taste of the water and reporting health concerns. Rashes, hair loss, and eventually, dangerous blood lead levels in children. But city officials still insisted the water was safe. Finally, in 2016, a state of emergency was declared. A government program began distributing bottled water to residents for cooking, drinking, and bathing. An effort that was already underway through community groups, like the ones Ali was working with. And one result of all this? There was this surplus of plastic infiltrating the city out of sheer need. Just everywhere you looked, there's like stacks and stacks of bottled water. And even today, it's just littered on the ground everywhere. Bottles were being collected by these recyclers and being reprocessed and sold out of the state and out of the country to companies that are then profiting off the fact that Flint's been forced to use bottled water. As a designer, Ali saw the potential to use this plastic to make something, to treat those mountains of bottles like a local resource that could benefit Flint. So she started talking to Jack Burns, her friend and collaborator from design school asking people, what does Flint need? Everyone kept telling us jobs. So we realized this wasn't just gonna be like a short-term art project here, but how do we use our design backgrounds to bring a new manufacturing legacy to Flint? Flint's previous manufacturing legacy was of course building cars, specifically for General Motors. At its peak in the late 1970s, GM employed about half the city's population. This was followed by years of plant closures and layoffs. The economic impact of this decline was devastating and is well documented. But the environmental impact of these automotive plants in Flint was also significant. For decades before it became the city's source of drinking water in 2014, the Flint River was where GM and other factory operators dumped the byproducts of manufacturing. Some might look at Flint today and see shuttered factories and piles of plastic garbage. But Ali saw potential a place with a history of making complex products and a valuable raw material waiting to be turned into something new. But what? 
How do we really elevate something that people think of as disposable into something that's valuable and a real product of need and purpose? Eyeglasses are uniquely a medical device as well as a fashion product and it fit all the buckets for us. We could make it from the recycled plastic. It could be easily assembled with on-the-job skills training. You don't need a special degree or education. It has an extended lifespan of over a year, but you don't keep forever, which would encourage circularity within that product as well. That circularity, Ali mentions, relates to an important idea for people interested in the environment. Right now, we're transitioning from a linear economy to a circular economy. With linear economies, it's buy, use, landfill. With a circular economy, we're thinking from the full life cycle of that product. What we're making it with, how it's being used by the consumer, and then what's the end life of that product and how can we bring those raw materials back into the economy. For Genesee, that means offering a program where they'll buy back used glasses so they can be refurbished and donated to people in need, or recycled to make new products. From water bottle to eyeglasses, what happens is the bottles are collected by a recycler. They're shipped to a processor, which grinds that material into little pellets. And those pellets can be injection molded into really anything. Making molds for this plastic is a pretty specialized process, and a lot of experts told Ali and Jack that they should do it overseas. Have it done in China, and then you can just bring it here, but the whole point of all of this was to support local manufacturing and to be a proof of concept that the talent and the resources are here in Michigan. Ali and Jack found a manufacturing partner in the Detroit area who had the skill to produce the parts they needed. And more importantly, they found people who connected with their mission. From day one, the guys at Midwest Mold have been so supportive. They've been staying on weekends because they believe in it as much as we do. They're excited about the cause and excited because it's something they haven't done before. These guys have been making automotive parts for 30, 40 years, and everyone likes a little challenge. Once they get those molded plastic parts, there's still a lot of work to do to turn them into finished glasses. Those parts come out pretty rough. They come up to our facility in Flint where there's a lot of hand finishing that happens. We're basically making eyeglasses how they do in Italy in Flint from recycled plastic. And as Ali builds a team to assemble Genesee's glasses, she's thinking about the same question that guided her from the start. How to reveal the value in something that many people see as disposable. We just hired our first employee a couple of weeks ago and have been training her on assembly and in hiring her. We worked with the MAID Institute, an organization that works with people who are coming out of incarceration and trying to get their life back. Flint does not get enough credit for its creativity. The people who have stuck around, they are so tough and they've been through a lot. But I think it also creates a space where it's like you have to be innovative. I keep saying like we have too much family to fail, as in family, I mean community. And for Allie, this project has meant moving back home to Michigan after living in New York for a decade. I live in Flint now, and I know that's just where I'm supposed to be. Once your eyes are open to problems in the world, there's a responsibility Use the creativity and the knowledge you have to address the issue. Like, step outside of your comfort zone, take a risk. It's not easy, and it might go nowhere, but you can always go back to working a job that you hate. 
Honestly, that was just the point that I got to. Like, what do I have to lose at this stage in my life? One thing Allie doesn't worry about is other businesses copying the approach they've developed. Good, awesome. I hope they do that. I really hope Genesee is successful in its own right, but also a beacon of hope for other businesses. We're not seeing enough demand for products made from recycled materials, and it's cheaper for a lot of large companies to use virgin plastics. If we ban virgin plastics and we start using recycled plastic, then that's going to become a really valuable commodity because there's going to be such a demand for it. And it was a material that was invented to last forever, and it does. A question we get a lot is, what happens when Flint stops using bottled water? And even without a water crisis, in the U.S. alone, we use 1,500 to 2,000 single-use plastic water bottles every single second. And even if that completely stopped, there's such a surplus of plastic on this planet will just be mining plastic from the oceans. You know, we all wear our values. Anything that we purchase, we're casting a vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And glasses are a conversation starter. You wear them on your face, and there's a sense of pride that this product, that's one of the first things that people see about me and are a reflection of my identity. They're not just glasses. They're all these other things. Allie Rose Van Overbeck. Genesee's glasses are now available at Genesee.com. That's G-E-N-U-S-E-E.com. Music in this story was from Marcus Elliott and Jeremy Arndt, both Michigan-based Kickstarter creators themselves. If you're working on a project and want tips on how to reduce its environmental impact, you can check out Kickstarter's Environmental Resources Center. It's our online guide to sustainable manufacturing for creators. Find it at kickstarter.com slash environment. Now, let's shift from talking about massive global problems to small personal ones. It's our first installment of Solicited Advice, a recurring segment where artist and author Adam J. Kurtz answers your questions about your creative projects. Hey, Adam. Hey. I know you don't claim to be an expert, but... You do give a lot of advice. As someone who's done everything from self-publishing a zine in an edition of 20 to signing a major book contract, I feel like I can empathize with different stages of the creative process. Let's see if you can help these people out. Yeah, and if I can't, it doesn't matter. It's a podcast. Our first question comes from Laura, calling in from Belfast in Northern Ireland. Hi, Adam. I was wondering what your best advice for a recent art school graduate would be. Maybe something you wish you'd been told straight out of college. Post-grad life is rough. Thanks. So first of all, congratulations on graduating. I mean, that is already huge just because every art school is extremely fucking expensive. Sorry, who said that? Um, And welcome to the real world. We do not have the structures of childhood and school to keep us going. You are now in terrifying control of yourself. There's a lot of pressure when you graduate to have your style, to know what you're going to be hired for for the next 30 years. The truth is that you don't know. Even if you think you know, you don't know. But also, more likely than not, you have nothing fucking going on. And so this is like a really magical and exciting time for you. Now is really the time to do that research of who you are and who you want to be. Take this time to experiment, put your spin on things. I'm not telling you to rip off someone's style and present it as your own. But if you see something cool, teach yourself how to do that. Oh, and the number one piece of advice for a recent college grad is... Do not box yourself into a corner with your personal branding. Do not name your website mynameillustration.com 
because you might think you're an illustrator and find out that you're an animator. Again, you think you know, but you really don't know. Next, we have a question from Lee in Seattle. Hey, Adam, you always seem to have these cute, random ideas that everybody just loves. It seems easy for you. So I would love to know, how many bad ideas do you go through before you find one that works? What a good question. So I would like to immediately refute part of it. For all the people that do like cute things that I put out, so many people are just like, I hate this dude. He's what is wrong with our industry. But one thing I have figured out is to be less afraid of what people will think in general. Some of my most popular work is technically the worst. I don't need to make it good every single time. Perfect isn't actually better. And sometimes you worked on it forever and to you is perfect and everyone else is like, this doesn't feel right. This just isn't clicking the way that thing you did in 30 seconds is. And so if you treat your Instagram as a portfolio, then it's going to be really scary to post stuff. But if you acknowledge like, hey, this is a running log on my life. This is a sketchbook. You can explore, hey, why did people like this one? Social media is great for inspiration, but it is truly training us to think that we need to be making work all the time. These are platforms that want us to be churning out work so that they can sell ads on it. We don't actually have to make something every day. Just because you follow creators who seem to be doing that doesn't mean that they are, because I'll post stuff I made a year ago on whatever Tuesday when I want a red background image, you know what I mean? If you can just recontextualize what those platforms are for you, that can make them so much more tolerable and it can really help you grow in a beautiful way. What was your worst idea? And you have to be honest. Mm. I've had so many bad ideas. I made a website called Greetings NYC where you could order like really terrible New York souvenirs. Like, you know, when you're in Midtown and they sell those really bad knockoff I Heart New York shirts. So I bought a bunch of those. And for like $10, you could get a T-shirt and I would send it to you like from New York, like authentic That domain name expired after one year, and I was like, okay, goodbye. (laughs) I mean, that's what's cool about the internet. With very little overhead, you can just make stuff. And so if it flops, it flops. And no one's, like, judging you for that. I don't think anyone's going to be like, that website was bad, so everything they do from now on is garbage. And listen, if you are really concerned that you had this failure, then absolutely keep going because you'll just bury it with good work. But I find that if you just leave something off your portfolio website, it's like it never happened. (laughs) If you don't tell people that you failed, more often than not, they don't know. Don't look back if you trip. I always look back. I'm not cool. I was was literally just thinking, I'm not that I'm always like, who? What was that? Well, thanks so much, Adam. That was really helpful. Thanks for having me. Thanks for trusting me. Let's keep those lines of communication open. Ask me some shit that you feel like you can't bug a professional person with. This is the space where you can ask those things. If you want to call Adam, call 914-381-0233 to leave a voice message asking for advice on your creative quandaries. Feel free to call in. The number is 911 and then just stay on the line. (laughs) 911, what's your emergency? Uh, my post didn't get enough likes. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of Just the Beginning. The show is produced by Zakia Gibbons, Michael Garofalo, and me, Nick Yolman. Elise Malouk is Kickstarter's editorial director. Our theme music is by Balloon. Thanks to everyone who called in with questions for Adam. We'll get to more in a future episode. Visit us at podcast.kickstarter.com. 
and tell us what you think of the show. Leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm Nick Yolman. I'm Zakia Gibbons, and this is just the beginning.